Good morning, church. Please turn with me, as you've already heard, to the book of Haggai, all of two chapters. Feel free to use the page number, 781, the book of Haggai. And then as you're turning there, you may be new to our church or new to our tradition. We celebrate on this day, as many churches do, Reformation Sunday. We'll celebrate it again this evening. And uh, with uh, a sister church, and we'll be preaching on. I will be preaching on sola scriptura. Sometimes you hear these these solas, these alones, and they're organizing our service today. That uh, we believe that we learn the truth of the gospel from God's word alone. It it preaches Christ alone as salvation in by grace alone, received by faith alone, all to the glory of God alone. Those are those five solas you may sometimes hear describing the Reformation faith. And, and uh, we often trace it to the 16th century with the nailing of the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg church in Germany with Martin Luther as he was, he was protesting against the non-biblical teachings of the church. And he said, we want to get back to scripture and and uh, that uh, scripture alone is our guidance and is sufficient for us. And it tells us how we are to, to get to heaven alone by receiving the grace that Jesus earned for us and receive it by faith. You shouldn't get the impression that uh, the gospel was not known in the church before the 16th century. We've already sung a hymn that's from the 6th century. God preserved a seed of the gospel in every century, but this was a revival revival of returning the gospel uh, to powerful preaching and spreading throughout the world. We celebrate that gift of the gospel back to us. We want to begin and end our day by celebrating that re-gifting of the gospel to the church. And we keep that Reformation tradition by studying all of Scripture and seeing that Christ alone is the message of Scripture from beginning to end, even in a little book like Haggai. We've been studying these minor prophets, these little prophets that occur at the end of the Old Testament. Usually we say we think this book is dated around such and such a time, 7th or uh, 8th or 7th or 6th century before Christ. Here we're not left to doubt because Haggai writes down the date for us. He gives it in the very first verse in the second year of Darius the king, the Persian king, the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came. Now, that, if we translate that, it, that's August 29 of 520 BC. This is when the word came to him and he announced it to the people of Israel or to Judah. When we left Habakkuk, we were studying a prophet who was warning that because of Judah's uh, unrepentant hearts, they were going to be taken by God's tough love into exile in Babylon for 70 years. Well, that has already occurred now that we pick up in Haggai. They've already, they've already served that time in Babylon. And uh, Persia has, has defeated them just as Habakkuk promised it would. And a Persian king named Cyrus gave them some money to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding their city. 50,000 people or so went back to start rebuilding and they started rebuilding the temple. But then they quit for some opposition. And the temple 
the church in the middle of town lay in disrepair. And God sent Haggai, and Zechariah as well, but Haggai back to them to say, you've, you've neglected, you're neglecting your priorities. I put the church in the center of your city to remind you that I am the center of your life. And until you put that back at the center, you'll be missing a very important aid to remember that Christ in the center of your life is what blesses you. Well, I told you these, these prophets are nosy people. They get right down into our business, even to the point of saying, do not neglect the church. That's the point of Haggai. So we pick up reading in verse 1 of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, they say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never have enough to drink. You never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And then I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and he stirred up the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Open our eyes, O Lord, our physical eyes, to see your word that is printed here and open the eyes of our heart that we might see 
that you have manifested yourself in our world, in our material surroundings, in order that our hearts may follow you. Have your way with us. Subdue us under your merciful and gracious and sovereign hand. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen. Though we have this part of our instinct which says that we, our instinct, especially as evangelical Christians, this instinct that says spiritual is good, physical is bad, we know uh, intuitively that that's not exactly the case. That God uses physical things to reinforce spiritual truths in our hearts. He uses physical places, physical activities to reinforce, to shape us, to form us for good as well as for bad. We give you this example. We had a lovely wedding here yesterday, right in this place, in this church, because it was the church of both the bride and the groom. They came to have their wedding in this church. They didn't choose the parking lot. They didn't choose the middle of Poplar Avenue. They didn't choose a nondescript field. They came to this church. The wedding service proceeded as, as wedding service traditionally does. And each of us has our favorite parts of a wedding service. But traditionally, the high point of a wedding ceremony, a marriage ceremony, is the giving of the ring of the groom to the bride. Repeated through the centuries, repeated in our culture, maybe rings of various styles, rings of various values. I've never performed a wedding without a ring. One time I did a wedding with a beer tab as a ring, but I always had a ring. The high point is reached when the pastor says to the groom, take the ring, place it on her left hand. He never knows which is the left. The groom never does. But place it on her left hand and repeat after me. Here are the old words from the Book of Common Prayer. This ring I give thee as a symbol of my vow. And with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now that ring becomes a treasure. We put that ring on in this place and they went out and they had their reception and I think it's highly likely that that ring is still on her finger today and that ring is highly treasured. And will likely be treasured for the rest of her life and when her husband is away on a long trip, she may finger that ring and say, I remember that day in that place when those promises were made to me that he would return. And he'll, she'll honor him as well by taking care of that ring when the prongs are uh, misshapen. She'll have them repaired when it needs to be clean. She'll have it clean. Usually that's the way that physical symbol, though we know that's not what marriage, that's not marriage itself. Marriage is more than that. That physical symbol is important. And then just think of the opposite is true. If later on in the marriage, the prong falls off, she says, I don't care. Stone falls off, I don't know where it is. The whole ring falls off her finger, lost. I don't care to recover it. 
There's a problem probably in the relationship unless she just wants another ring. The same is happening, a similar phenomenon is happening here as Haggai is confronting the people of Judah. God has put a church in the middle of your town, in the middle of your city, Jerusalem. And God doesn't live in a building. God is not contained by a building. But God has given specific instructions from the beginning of time to designate a place to worship for the good of the people. Sometimes it's a stone pillar. Sometimes it's under a tree. Sometimes it's in a cave. Sometimes it's in a tabernacle. Sometimes it's in a temple. He says, set that part, that place apart because I want you to know that I give you, I give you a place to aid you in understanding that I am with you and love you. Now, we can falsely think that we have somehow progressed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We don't need those places anymore, but that's ridiculous, isn't it? We can say just as, just as authoritatively that God gives us a place today. He gives the people of God a place. A Bible-believing church is a place, a gathered place, wherein God provides a loving aid to help us remember that Jesus is with us. A Bible-believing church is a gift of God's grace. It's his loving gift to us. It's an aid to help us remember that Jesus Christ loves us. And when that church, when that place, the activities of that place are not a regular part, a prioritized part of your life, Your life is unsatisfying. And when that gift of God, that place of worship and spiritual formation is a central part of your life, a prioritized part of your life, your life flourishes. It's just that literal. You'll say, now, wait a minute. I was told that the Bible, I was told the church is not a place. It's the, it's, it's a spiritual idea. Well, would you say the same about your house? Or would you say the same about the clothing or the other things that, uh, that Lucy brought up? Goodness sake, we don't, want, we don't want clothing to be just a spiritual idea. Mercy, no. And, and yes, family is more than a house, but family goes better when you have a roof over your head. The church of Jesus Christ, yes, there is, this, there is a powerful, unseen spiritual power, uh, uh, truth to it. But God has multiplied temples by bringing them closer and closer and closer to his people. That he might also emulate that incarnational principle of Jesus. That he has come after us to be near us. Now how does Haggai make this point? That when the church... That gathered place that God gives to us as a loving aid to remember Jesus is present with us. When that is not a priority to us, life suffers. Life is at risk. Life does not flourish. 
and I, oh, there are my notes, <clears throat> that <clears throat> life does not flourish. He, he, he repeats a very simple principle that Jesus emphasized in the Gospels. This principle is mentioned in every one of the four Gospels, twice in some. He who would save his life will lose it. And he who loses himself for my sake and the gospel's sake will find it. He who tries to preserve his life according to his own or her own priorities will find themselves constantly behind, never catching up, not flourishing, unsatisfied. But in God's upside down kingdom, when Jesus Christ and his ordinances are made first, a first priority, when Jesus is the center, the priority, number one in our lives, we find life most satisfying and fulfilling. Here's how it comes out in Haggai. That first point, he who would save his life, he who tries to save his life will lose it. In verses one to four, he says, this is what has happened with the people of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse two, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is time. Is it merely a time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? Now is the time, he says. Now, what's he referring to? As I said, Cyrus the king, a couple of kings back from Darius is mentioned here, gave the people of of Judah money, according to Isaiah's prophecy, gave the people money, said, go back and rebuild your church. Go back, ultimately rebuild your town. And so they go back, they have, and he gives them a lot of money. They have 1,100 pounds of gold and three tons of silver and, and they have enough money to buy uh, uh, trees uh, from Lebanon to be brought down for wood. And they, they begin to fashion, the, they clear off the rubble from the temple mount and they begin to fashion the furniture and, and things are going along uh, swimmingly until they get a, a, little of op, a little opposition, people intimidating them, saying, you can't do that anymore, shouldn't do that anymore. And they folded like a tent, they gave it up. We're not gonna do that, we're not gonna build the temple anymore. But they went on building. Their economy was thriving they were doing very well for themselves and so well that they built not just houses, but they, they luxuriously, they extravagantly uh, decorated those houses with paneling, taking the wood that they had brought for the temple, using it in their own homes. They sought to save their lives. They're going to they're gonna move away from the priority that God placed, put this physical aid to your worship in the center of your city to remind you that I'm number one in your life. Instead, they just started blending in with the rest of the world, spending and acting and doing and loving just like the rest of the world. The opposition went away. They were no longer a threat to their surrounding culture. Could it be that something similar is happening in the church of Jesus Christ today? Just think about uh, the way the size and expense of homes have increased. 1950, 
Average size of a home was a little less than a thousand square feet. And 3.8 people lived in it. I don't know what eight tenths of a person looks like, but 3.8 people lived in that less, little less than thousand square foot house. And today, the average size of an American home, the average size, over 2,500 square feet, 2.6 people live in it. A 270% increase. I've seen that increase even the decades of my ministry. Along with it, along with this idea that my house needs to be bigger, my house needs to be more expensive, my house needs to be better groomed and appointed. And a commensurate attitude that, you know, we're spending way too much money on the church. The church demands too much time. I have so many other things to do. The church should be an idea. The church can be anywhere. This is what we also seen. With that decline of God's priority of putting a Bible-believing church in the center of your life, the highest priority of your life, by which you will remember that Jesus Christ is Lord. Along with that, 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 um, that neglect has come what sociologists now call the epidemic of loneliness. 1999, 70% of the population said they go to church or synagogue or mosque, some kind of religious worship service. After COVID, 30% of the population go to church or some place of worship of any kind. In the CDC's report on the epidemic of loneliness, they say the number one, the number one reason there is an epidemic of loneliness, they say, is because of the decline in church attendance. Now, they don't prescribe. They can't because of the government. They don't prescribe that you start going back to church. They said, just start getting together with people. Go walk your dog with somebody or go to a, a, a bowling league or something like that. But they identify that our epidemic of loneliness is attached to a decline of gathering together as the people of God. When you try to save your life, you lose it. That's why he describes here that everything else you pursue, it's unsatisfying. You've sown much and you've literally harvested much, but you harvested, quote unquote, that is the satisfaction of your sowing is, it's just not there. Your wages don't amount to anything. It's like putting it into a bag with holes in it. You're experiencing when we neglect the priorities that God prescribes for our life, we experience the curse of it. C.S. Lewis said, it's not so much that, that God curses us when we neglect to obey him as much as he gives us over to what we are seeking. Lewis said, there are only two people in this world that are at the end of the day, at the end of time, there will only be two kinds of people in the world. There will be those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God will say, your will be done. Those who say, I'm going to put you first and make you my priority. I'm going to order my life according to the priorities that you have given to me. 
You've lovingly given me the church. I'm going to make it a priority for my giving, for my activity, that I might be formed by you. Your will be done. In other words, in otherwise, God is giving us as a nation over to your will be done, which is the epidemic of loneliness, among other things. CDC says, by the way, the mortality or the morbidity impact of epidemic of loneliness is, equip, is, uh, is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It, is, uh, it uh, almost guarantees an increased mortality rate, cardio cardiological disease or dementia or stroke or depression or anxiety. He would try to save his life by doing it his way, her way, will lose it. But on the contrary, the one who loses himself for Jesus' sake, for the gospel's sake, will find it. This is my upside-down kingdom. When you make me the priority, you gain a satisfying life, a life that produces spiritually or eternally significant fruit. That's the the rest of this passage, verses 12 to, to 15. The people of God responded to Haggai's word. Through their high priest, through their governor, they responded in in Repentance. And then they, they turned and began to build the house of God. They, they already had the Temple Mount cleared. They start building the church back in its place. And that church then becomes a, a, becomes a model, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would come to do. Jesus came and tabernacled, templed among us. And in so doing, he didn't do away with the principle of gathering as the people of God. Just because he did away with temple worship, with his sacrifices, with a, with a, with a, 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 a curtain that would, sub, that would separate the people from the Holy of Holies, he did away with all that. He cleaned it up, he cleaned it out. He made it more accessible. And he said, now I want these multiplied I want you to go into temple planting. We call it now church planting. It's the, it's the impulse of the incarnational gospel of Jesus Christ where the, the church, the temple, becomes even closer to people. And throughout history, in some fashion or another, whenever people get saved, they gather together and they start worshiping in a place. There's no prescription for what it has to look like, but it's a place. It may be a cave, it may be a tent, it may be a warehouse, it may be an edifice that helps you lift your heart even while you're lifting your eyes to the Lord. But it is a place. And in coming in that place, we come together with each other. We come near to each other. We realize we're not alone. We, we go through a, a liturgy, a rhythm of, of reenacting the gospel every week as God calls us to himself. We confess our sins and he assures us of pardoning grace. He instructs us in the way we should go. He seals all that to us with the, the Lord's Supper. 
And then and we, we build places, churches, churches that are Bible believing churches that are that have that incarnational impulse become not not uh, not places where they hide, where they they not places where they they hoard, but rather they become mission sending stations. The people in the book of Acts, they gathered in a place and then they would go out and they would come back and they would bring those that they gathered back to that place. And then they would go out and they would go out farther and they would establish new places. And those new places would go farther out and they bring people back and they would be dispersed again. It's like a, it's like a well I once saw in, in Haiti, a community well, the church dug it church had been started first. The people had built the church before they built their own houses. They built the church. And then the next thing they built was a well for the community. And people came to that church's yard to a well and they got water by which they were, they could find cleansing. They could find refreshment. They could cook with it. There were other wells throughout Haiti private wells in people's private dwellings and kept up that little family. But that well in that community was illustrative of what churches do. We gather together in order to bless the world. We come to this place at this address weekly in worship, first of all, to get refreshed and equipped in worship, and then we return for discipleship activities and we bless the world. This place is a hubbub of activity. 10,000 setups per year. We use this place, this building to its very corners. We use it up in order to give. That's what God said. I want you to rebuild my church, that that would be, that it would be a blessing to the world. And then notice what happens. Notice how, what kind of blessing it is when they lose themselves, when we lose ourselves to live uh, unselfishly and, and do church unselfishly. This is what happened. They restored their relationship. God said, uh, God sent the messenger back. Verse 13, he spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And then secondly, they, they, they gain an exhilarating worldview. It says they feared the Lord. It didn't mean that they cowered, but rather that they understood. When, when, when God's priorities were put back in their life, when they're restored to that pattern of weekly worship, physically going to that place, joining with others, they have an exhilarating worldview. They understand that God is the king. God is in control. How much do we need that as well? You come in this place, you go through the week and you hear the liturgies of the world. You hear it from talk radio, you hear it from the, you hear it from the news media, you hear it from your social media feeds, you hear it from your peers and your family and you understand the world is falling apart, no one's in control, the whole thing's gonna melt down. And you come back to church and you come here and you realize, oh, I'm not alone. Not nearly as alone as I thought I was. There are a whole bunch of people worshiping the same Christ. We're even sitting in the same direction, looking at that cross, worshiping the same Christ. And Christ says he is the king of the world. And he's going to win. And the reset button gets pushed on your heart. 
once again, you can go back out into the world. Then you get this liberating confidence where he says, effectively, he says, I'm the king of the world. Don't be afraid. How can we not be afraid? Because he says, verse 13, I am with you. The foreshadowing of Jesus Christ to come. And always the couplet that goes with the charge to be courageous. Be not afraid. Be very courageous. Why? I'm with you. I am with you. You need that reinforced to yourself by gathering together with God's people. The Holy Spirit descending on a worship service. The Holy Spirit communing with himself among us. Reinforcing that to us. I am with Say, how in the world am I going to take that first step? First step of reordering my world. Reordering my finances. Reordering my schedule. Reordering the pattern of my family's life. You take that first step just the way these people did. The spirit is moving Today, you've come into this place. The Spirit has spoken by His Word. Take the next step by saying, my life has been unframed. My life has been in the wrong priorities. Oh, Holy Spirit, by the grace of Jesus, reorder my world. Years ago young woman who'd grown up in my church got news in the middle of the night that her mother had died in a very tragic way. Her mom and dad had gone to our church, been there every week, morning and evening, brought her there. She was in vacation Bible school and Sunday school and youth group until she went off to college. Her parents, soon after she went off to college, got mad about something and left the church. I don't remember what it was. It wasn't very significant. It never is. But they left. When she got that word that her mother died... She got on a plane, of course. She had to come from one side of the country to the other. She got there late night, rented a car. She didn't go first to her dad's house. She went first to the church. It's after hours, the church was locked up. She went there anyway. She couldn't get into the sanctuary, so she went up to the window of the sanctuary. She looked through it, saw the pew where she and her mom and dad worshipped every week, year after year after year. And then she made a, a pilgrimage around the property. She went out to the churchyard and to the bench where she, had, she remembered sitting with her vacation Bible school leader and asking Christ into her heart, asking Jesus to save her from her sins take her to heaven. She went to the place, she went across the street to the junior high building and she, she remembered meeting with the junior high leader after meeting one night and asking, what does it really mean to put Jesus first in my life? 
Went back across the street to a little statue that we had there, and she remembered standing there with the senior high leader when her heart had been broken. How, how can Jesus heal my broken heart? She looked around. She just spun, turned slowly, 360 degrees, and remembered how God, using a place and the places, the spaces within the place, to confirm, to form her, confirm to her his promise, I will be with you. Here is my way, walk ye in it. Sunday after her mother's funeral, she was back in that church, in the pew that she sat with, her parents in, and her dad was with her the first time back. And after she left, he kept coming. He came to me one day. He said, my life has been a wreck. I made my priorities a priority. Now God is putting me back together. Because of some magic in the pew? No. But because he started making God's priorities, his priority by coming weekly to worship, being formed by God's word with the people of God. He received God's beautiful wedding ring, the ring of his covenant, a place. It's a gift of God for the people of God, a loving aid to remembering Jesus Christ loves you and he's with you. Don't neglect it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us enough to continue to go after us when we are foolishly wandering away. Please, O oh Lord, confirm your promises to us even today as we have experienced reenactment of the gospel in this very place. Help us not to leave the same people we entered but all the more zealous to respond to your grace with loving obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.